Hello, and welcome to The Day That Antitrust Died, a special feature of the Ipsa Dixit podcast. I'm Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And I'm Ramsey Woodcock, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law as well. On March 2nd, 1974, a group of antitrust scholars met at the Arley House in Warrington, Virginia. Together, we are going to investigate whether that was the day that antitrust died. Our first guest is Mike Shearer, uh, probably uh, the most distinguished antitrust economist, not only of his generation, but of any generation. And he was present uh, on March 2nd, 1974 at Arley House. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit about who you were in 1974 and, and what got you invited to the conference? Well, I'm not sure exactly who I was at the time. I was at the International Institute of Management in Berlin, Germany, and was working on a book that eventually had the title, uh, The Economics of Multi-Plant Operation, an International Comparison Study. I guess that, that was known at the time that I was working essentially on scale economies, and so they invited me. In the meantime, I had accepted the job as chief economist of the Federal Trade Commission. I had not taken up the job, and so basically I came from the International Institute to the Early House Conference, and again, I think it was probably because they knew I was working on scale economies. Mike, who, who organized the Early Conference and why? Well, certainly the organizing spirit uh, was Harvey Goldschmidt. Uh, he teamed up, it appears, with Michael Mann, who had been my predecessor at the Federal Trade Commission, and also with J. Fred Weston. And it was they, those three, I think, who put together a really interesting panel of believers and skeptics. So what, what happened exactly on that panel? You've told me, uh, you know, that it was a very important moment for you and, and, and changed your thinking about uh, antitrust and concentration. But what, what, what happened exactly? Well, what happened is that we had a good rip-roaring discussion uh, between the skeptics and the advocates. And I, I must say, some, a lawyer said to me at the end of the thing that he had never known, he'd never seen such a debate like this, uh, that certainly economists didn't play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. And we had a, we had a very, very vigorous discussion, which brought together uh, quite different points of view that already were prominent. Uh, there were the believers in antitrust, and there was a substantial uh, school of skeptics, uh, which sometimes one identifies with the University of Chicago School, but that would be inaccurate in this case, because, uh, for example, uh, there had been a report uh, just a couple of years earlier, the so-called Neal Report, uh, which uh, uh, advocated a substantial program of breaking up big business, and the uh, the head of that 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 uh, study was Phil Neal, the dean of the University of Chicago Law School. 
Also, Richard Posner had come out with a, a book on antitrust policy and recommended quite radical restructuring for firms that were essentially pricing in parallel. So there were differing schools, but they uh, don't full fit under any easy rubric. But we were all there, most of us anyway. So, Mike, from a layperson's perspective, could you say who the sort of supporters of antitrust regulation were and what they believed, what the sort of detractors, who the detractors were and what they believed and sort of what the difference, what the, what the points of difference between them were? Well, on the, on the supporters side, there's a school that uh, goes way back uh, to the turn of the uh, 20th century, uh, included among them Teddy uh, Roosevelt uh, and a number of people who had studied this. Uh, I suppose, well, Mike Mann, who was one of the organizers, would have been one of the big supporters. Uh, probably the leader in the field at the time uh, was... Uh, uh, Leonard Weiss at the University of Minnesota, but a, a very large group. And I must say that uh, I wasn't really closely familiar with the detractors. I knew there was a, a, a sizable group, but I hadn't really interacted with many of them. Uh, Yale Brosen was, was certainly one. Uh, uh, Don Dewey at Columbia University, who wrote the introduction to this conference, uh, was one, but a, a very large uh, group of people. And, and so you, you mentioned, Mike, that you, when you arrived at the conference, you were just coming off this massive study that you had done of, um, of, of sort of, you said, multi-plant operation. Basically, I understand that that study was looking to see what the sort of minimum efficient scale was for in the major industries in America, meaning how small could you make each co each company in one of these industries without losing efficiencies? So, so you showed so you showed up at at Early House having done all this work to basically show how small you could make America's companies without losing efficiency, and and so so you got there and you were confronted with with these Chicago school folks and and what did they tell you and how did that change your thinking if it did at all? Well, my thinking was changed by uh, seeing a sharply for formulated divergence of views. That is something that I hadn't quite experienced before. I guess I had encountered all the arguments, but that there were such sharply divergent uh, views, I didn't know. Uh, let me just, uh, uh, my, my own paper was on economies of scale. Uh, it was the uh, first substantive paper in the eventual con conference proceedings, which were titled Industrial Concentration, colon, The New Learning. And uh, my critic, the very substantial criticism of my work, uh, came uh, from John McGee of the University of Washington, whom I had never met, although I guess I had read some things by him. In, in, uh, let me just uh, read one sentence from his conclusion of his critique of my work. He says, in sum, I uh, conclude that apart from those industries dominated by state controls, there is the strongest presumption that the existing structure is the efficient. <laughs> 
structure. Now, I, uh, coming from a different point of view, I found that absolutely ludicrous. I had studied the nearly century-old uh, history of divestiture of companies. I was well familiar with the merger laws, uh, all of which attempted various structural reorganizations uh, in order to achieve more effective uh, con uh, competition. I, I had my doubts about some of these, but I certainly did not doubt the basic principle and I realized that there was a substantial group of persons, economists mostly, also lawyers, who did doubt those fundamental principles. So, so that, those, two, the, those two schools were joined at the conference. For me, it was very enlightening. What, what did you expect? So my, my, if, if I'm understanding correctly, sort of the mainstream view at the time was one that, you know, was, was what the Neal report was calling for, which was that America needed to deconcentrate, that there needed to be a solution to the concentration problem. And, you know, you had done a lot of academic work supporting sort of how a project for deconcentration would be carried out. And you came to this conference and encountered for the first time this very vigorous and aggressive um, pushback from the Chicago school folks. How did, at the time, if you recall, how did you think it was all going to turn out? Was this just sort of, you know, uh, sort of a, a you know, a, a minority viewpoint that was probably going to go away in your view? Or did you expect that this was going to turn into the sort of beginnings of, um, you know, an antitrust uh, dismantling movement uh, you know, such, uh, such as the one that we actually ended up seeing with the massive declines in antitrust enforcement that followed in subsequent decades? Well, when I went to the conference, I had no idea whatsoever what would come out of it. And uh, I knew there would be different points of view represented, represented but I had just had no idea. Indeed, uh, let's, let, let me make my uh, fundamental point clear. I don't think that except in pinpointing the uh, analytic and ideological differences, uh, the conference uh, had a big impact on antitrust policy. These, ex these differences existed before the conference. What the conference did was sharpen what the differences were and point out the areas where uh, additional research was needed. Now, in terms of my own behavior, which I think is quite unimportant in the big scheme of things, uh, but in terms of my own behavior, I very soon thereafter became chief economist of the Federal Trade Commission with the new thought, hey, there are big differences of opinion on some really cr critical economic questions. Uh, we need better studies in order to have the better studies. Uh, we need better data. And this made me a vigorous supporter of the newly emerging Federal Trade Commission line of business program. And we eventually, despite sharp opposition, succeeded with that. We got four years of data. Uh, a lot of studies were done, which did uh, clarify at least some of the analytic uh, differences. And what, what, what did those studies uh, show? Well, first of all, uh, the, 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 let's, let's call it, for simplicity, the Chicago School, which, again, as I say, is misleading. 
Uh, but for one thing, they criticized the, the existing strain of literature in which with statistical data, uh, the seller concentration ratio in various industries was related to profitability indices. And uh, they criticized that. Well, we did a lot of work with that uh, using the line of business data and discovered that the criticism was partially uh, correct. That is to say that uh, uh, the concentration, the share of the market held by the largest four sellers, uh, the concentration ratio per se was not terribly important. It showed that there were idiosyncratic differences that were quite important. Richard Schmalenze did the uh, pioneering work on this with line of business uh, data. It showed, however, in a series of, of studies that previously had been impossible, uh, that market share was a very important determinant of line of business uh, profitability. It showed furthermore that there were uh, market sh that that there, there were underlying uh, phenomena that uh, for this market share f uh, condition, uh, part of it to be sure was the traditional no notion of seller power uh, over setting uh, prices. But there were additional things. Uh, product differentiation was very important. Advertising turned out to be very important. And I learned in the late 1970s from two sets of pioneering studies that something else was very important, namely that first mover advantages, one, determine market share, but two, determine prices and hence profitability. And uh, uh, that, that, that was quite a new insight that I think was quite important. And that came out essentially of the line of business studies, uh, plus one other study about which I had known absolutely nothing as of 1974. That was the so-called PIMS, P-I-M-S uh, group uh, work. Uh, P-I-M-S meant profit impact of marketing strategies. And between that and work by Ronald Bond and David Lean, uh, I, I realized that first mover advantages were very, very important. That's been a significant theme in my subsequent research. So, uh, so, so to to um, to sort of uh, put a finer point on it. So, b before this conference, before the Early House conference, you had this sort of dominant view that if you have a concentrated industry, meaning you have a small number of firms that uh, control most of the market, they're going to collude in some sense and raise prices. And so therefore you should see a kind of very defined relationship between concentration and profits, more concentration, more profits. And the antitrust implication seemed very clear, which was deconcentrate. If you want to, uh, 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 if you want to prevent firms from extracting too much value from consumers. After the conference, uh, you, know, you, you carried out these line of business studies, which showed that the situation was a little bit more complicated. It wasn't just that if you have a small number of firms in the industry, you're going to necessarily have higher prices. It was that if you have one firm that's the first mover, the first to enter the market, that firm is going to be able to, to control a larger market share, perhaps because of brand familiarity with consumers and so on, 
Uh, and that can be a huge determinant of the ability of a firm to, 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 to charge higher prices. Advertising also played a role and so on. Would you say that the sort of profusion of different causes for profitability that were uncovered by the line of business studies made it harder to develop a sort of coherent antitrust um, uh, policy and, and that perhaps contributed in some sense to antitrust's eventual decline in the 80s? Well, I don't, uh, the contribution part I would dispute. Uh, contributed, uh, yes, in the sense that uh, we realized that things were more complicated than the, the early academic studies had suggested, but we also realized what variables uh, uh, should be examined uh, in carrying out two kinds of structural initiatives. Uh, one, uh, merger uh, uh, prevention. Uh, what kinds of things should we look for in uh, uh, when when two leading firms or two firms with leading market shares uh, or more uh, firms merged? And second, as I say, the Neal report, as well as many other advocates, uh, suggested a vigorous program of deconcentration. And this uh, this said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's let's. If we deconcentrate, are we going to lose significant scale economies? And what is the nature of these significant scale economies? And so it made us wary. Now, as to actual effects on policy, uh, I would say one, uh, an increased wariness. Uh, two, uh, rewriting of the merger guidelines as of uh, 19, let's see, 1982 and again with amendment putting in an efficiencies defense in 1984. But as far as changing the general thrust of policy, I don't think the conference did that. Uh, to be sure, uh, uh, from the 80s on, uh, uh, antitrust has tended to be much less vigorous, but that was re the result more of... Uh, uh, changes in leadership, in particular the election of Ronald Reagan and his installation of a very conservative bunch of guys at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, ra rather than any substantive change in the law. So if, if I understand correctly, it's your view that sort of the, the any intellectual shift that came out of Early House didn't necessarily justify the big changes in big reductions in enforcement that happened about a decade later. Yes, I think they would have happened with or without Early House. This, this strong school of opposition existed uh, once, and, and let me know, it's not just Republican versus Democrat, because I was chief economist at FTC under a Republican uh, regime, first Richard Nixon, then Jerry Ford, uh, but we had a very, very strongly uh, pro-antitrust administration at the Federal Trade Commission and also at the Justice Department. So it's not Republican versus Democrat. It's, uh, it's the school from which the leadership is derived, or at least that's part of it. There were additional variables. Uh, May, may be influenced by the intellectual climate, but still uh, separable. The, uh, again, the key change was the installation at the FTC in particular 
of more conservative leadership, of leadership that adhered to this oppositionist uh, school. But in addition, I think at least two th additional things happened. Uh, number one, uh, curbing of the budget of the antitrust agencies over time, which actually, let me make it three. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two was another merger wave, which drained the resources of the antitrust agencies uh, uh, away from initi concentration-reducing initiatives and toward merger analysis. And, and let me throw note what to me at least is a third influence, uh, changes in the way uh, economists uh, who played a uh, substantial role in this, changes in the way that the economists were trained. In the good old days, uh, when I got my PhD, economists did historical book-length industry case studies. Uh, that tradition of writing a, uh, a case study PhD dissertation virtually disappeared in the late 70s and during the 1980s. Uh, what happened is that you had a lot of economists who could do statistics and who could do theory, but who really didn't understand the nuts and bolts of industries. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission previously had a great tradition of doing such industry studies. That tradition almost vanished. Uh, the only exception uh, I could think of, there may be others, but the only exception I can think of uh, was their uh, very good study of pay for delay in uh, uh, generic pharmaceuticals. But by and large, the, the intellectual base dried up uh, in terms of human capital, human talent, and uh, the budgetary support dried up, and more conservative leadership uh, took over, and the result of these three things in some unknown combination was much less emphasis on antitrust and a virtual disappearance of, of uh, recommendation for recommendations for structural uh, divestiture. The last, I think, was, uh, was uh, uh, initiated by Senator Hart in probably the 1980s, but it, it, it went nowhere. Indeed, when Senator Hart, uh, 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 no, so the, there was someone else from the House of Representatives too, but uh, I, I remember uh, Representative Rodino called together a closed door session of his antitrust oversight committee, invited me there, and he referred to Senator Hart's initiative and said, hey, wait a minute, let's not do anything radical. Let's think this over. And indeed, nothing happened. Do you think what sounds like a shift from more qualitative to more quantitative work affected any antitrust scholarship and by extension, antitrust enforcement? Certainly it affected the scholarship. Uh, whether it affected policy, I can't say. The fact is for quite several de decades, uh, uh, studies in the so-called structure conduct performance uh, vein 
virtually disappeared, although they have reappeared in the last decade or so as people became uh, worried about uh, increasing profit margins and increasing inequality of income distribution. And you're you're referring to the the recent work for the last couple of years, such as by uh, Deloker and um, Gutierrez and Philippon, uh, that shows increases in sort of macro at, at the macro level and margins across the American economy. Well, yes, I, I in a sense I'm referring to them. The fact is, I've been fully retired now for nearly two and a half years. And I have not followed that work in detail, although I've followed descriptions of it, and I find it very worrisome. My own most recent research has been on one aspect of it, uh, namely executive compensation. Uh, When I was a student at the Harvard Business School in the middle 1950s, uh, the, the conventional wisdom had it that the pay of a chief executive officer was uh, on average 13 times that times the pay of an average employee. Other studies, including mine, have shown a uh, process of gradual and sometimes uh, sudden escalation, so that that ratio is now somewhere between 200 to 1 Uh, to 300 to 1 from what was once the case uh, on the order of 13 to 1. Much, much more influential uh, influential to me, however, at least intellectually, uh, was uh, the work of uh, uh, on income distribution by Piketty, uh, Piketty, I'm sorry, and his associates, uh, uh, showing very substantial increases in the inequality of the distribution of income. And indeed, there's evidence that wages of the common working bloke have been uh, reduced and wages of top uh, income and and assets too of uh, top uh, earners have uh, increased as a share. All of this is worrisome. When the Sherman Act was passed in 1890, Contrary to what uh, Robert Bork alleged, uh, the Congress was very much worried about inequality of income distribution, and certainly that inequality has increased in the last couple of decades. So the developments are worrisome. Uh, There's no clear evidence of a reaction of antitrust to deal with them. It's some, something that's very interesting about these um, these recent margin studies is that they're not coming from industrial organization economists, right? Uh, you know, the, this is the work of sort of macro finance people, and 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 that seems to be partially because of uh, Early House and what came out of Early House, where you had uh, a sort of antitrust establishment at the time in the early late sixties, early seventies that was very interested in in investigating this relationship between concentration and profits. And then after the conference, you know, as you've described, there was this sort of intellectual recognition that, you know, maybe just pursuing that kind of a link, uh, you know, isn't, uh, isn't such a good idea. And so the work was dropped and now it's fallen to scholars in other fields who've sort of picked up the threads and have, and, and are, and are showing in effect that, 
you know, there is a, a relationship between concentration and profits. And the fact that we haven't been paying attention to it uh, has been a, a disaster and has led to this, these increases in margins. What, what are you, what are your thoughts about that? Is it, you know, is, has industrial organization economics dropped the ball over the last 30 years? Well, I would dissent mildly on uh, putting Early House Conference as a as the causal factor here. As I suggested earlier, uh, after Early House, it was clear, at least to people like me and a whole lot of other people, that there were relationships we did not understand qualitatively and or quantitatively. And using new and better data, we did a lot of work in this vein which clarified uh, the relationships and showed that they were more complex than we had assumed earlier. You can, you can credit Early House for that and for stimula stimulating people, uh, not, not driving them away, but stimulating them to do these studies. Now, why hasn't anything been done by industrial organizations uh, in the last two or three decades, or very little uh, done in this tradition. I, I'm not sure. Uh, some of my students did things like that, but I think uh, the reason is we thought we had a pretty good understanding, and certainly the, the point I would add is that uh, we realized it was important to do in-depth qualitative studies of particular industries functioning. But as I said before, this has become unfashionable among economists. Uh, the great e economist uh, uh, Joseph Schumpeter said that economic analysis consists of three things, theory, statistics, and history. Well, we still do lots of theory. <laughs> we still do a fair amount of statistics, although perhaps with, with uh, additional, uh, with different foci. But his, uh, history, uh, that seems to have vanished. And I think that's a tragedy. So th there was a, a conference at Harvard Law School that uh, you attended and, and I attended uh, about a month ago now, in November uh, uh, 2018. Uh, in which there was a lot of discussion of the sort of new evidence uh, surrounding margins uh, and the relationship between that and sort of weak antitrust enforcement. And one of the comments um, that was quite prevalent at the conference uh, pushing back against this was saying, well, we industrial organization economists, we learned back in the 70s that you can't really reliably measure margins at all. And so it's ridiculous to, to sort of, you know, for these finance folks to now start pursuing a relationship between margins and concentration when we learned 40 years ago that, that that's a dead end. What, 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 what do you think of that perspective? It sounds to me, you know, that your work in the latter half of the 70s with the line of business data, you know, established, didn't establish that you can't sort of study margins, but rather that you can uh, and that you can use them to sort of elucidate many different factors that contribute to them. But what, 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 what is your view about this? It's, are the finance people today fundamentally misguided? Well, I don't know what you mean by the finance people, but let me uh, make a personal reflection. I, I am very, I've been, even though I'm fully retired, I've been very interested in this question 
I went enthusiastically to the uh, Harvard Law School conference and left before the session uh, whose subject uh, you, you, you just uh, laid out. Uh, why did I leave? Well, look, I'm 86 years old. I found the room uh, badly overchilled. I just couldn't physically take it any longer, and so I missed out on that important session and hence on the ins insights that you report here. I just wasn't there to get them. Well, would you say, uh, but, but nevertheless, you must have a, 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 you know, an opinion about whether it's possible to reliably measure markups or measure margins, um, you know, as a statistical matter. Because as you know, you know, one of the major Chicago school arguments was that, you know, we can never really talk about margins because we never really know what costs are. They could include, you know, all sorts of intangible, you know, compensation for talent and so on and so forth. And, you know, and, and John McGee at, at Early House was making some of those uh, uh, comments. Well, yes, I'm reminded of my accounting professor at Harvard Business School. After going through a long dissertation about how difficult it was to uh, measure costs, he would turn to us, stretch his arms out, and say, life is complicated. I don't think that should deter us. Sure, it's difficult, but it can be done. Uh, with imperfection, to be sure, but it can be done. And uh, as you correctly say, industrial organization economists have more or less given up the effort, even though it could be done and should be done. I should add uh, very significantly that the line of business program was, was terminated uh, by the uh, people appointed under President Ronald Reagan, uh, so no similar set of data uh, has existed. The PIMS program ended, so our other great source of data on these kinds of relationships uh, ended. Uh, so if you're going to work on these kinds of things, you need something else. There is a something else, but I have not seen it tapped in significant detail by industrial organizations. Beginning, I believe, in the uh, early 1990s, the Census Bureau, which collects beautiful data on individual industries, uh, the Census Bureau opened up a research shop and made it accessible to economists who wanted to work on all kinds of questions, including the kinds of questions that we, uh, uh, we are discussing here. Uh, I took advantage of those data uh, sometime in the, uh, well, let's see, when was it? Uh, I don't know, early 80s, I guess. No, early 90s, uh, to, to study how changes in import penetration affected firms' incentives to invest in research and development. Uh, the census data were indispensable for doing that. But I don't think many industrial organization economists have uh, taken advantage of these data to, to examine in detail the traditional so-called structure, conduct, performance paradigm. So, uh, Mike, one of the arguments um, that we've been hearing a lot of these days, 
uh, uh, in pushing back against the evidence of increasing margins is that there's not really reliable data out there about the concentration levels in so-called relevant markets, right? So proper, and, and that's a technical antitrust term that refers to sort of properly defined markets in which uh, firms are really competing as opposed to sort of markets that are just defined by the Census Bureau and, uh, you know, in industry classifications and so on. Uh, did the line of business data help with that? You know, what, what, what is your thought about this problem of, uh, you know, finding, finding concentration data that relates to properly defined relevant markets? Well, I, I certainly agree with you that defining a uh, relevant, so quote, relevant market, end quote, uh, is very difficult. It's the heart of, among other things, uh, merger litigation. I've participated myself in struggles to define a relevant market and uh, had some substantial successes, including with Chicago school people on the other side. Uh, But that's always going to be a problem. I don't think the Census Bureau can sit there Uh, examining its navel and saying uh, what industry classification is, quote, relevant, end quote. Uh, I simply don't think they can do that. You must do this in the context of a, a merger case. You must do it in the context of a Sherman Act Section 2 divestiture action. But these are very difficult and expensive things to do. And you simply cannot expect the census agencies to do it. Rather, the economists who use such data have to be careful, have to throw out the data where the market is badly defined. Uh, whether that's done or not, I do not know. So I, I want to um, take us back, uh, Mike, to the um to, to Arley House, and there's in the conference volume that you referred to at the you know beginning of our discussion, Industrial Concentration and New Learning, which is a book published by the Columbia University Center for Law and Economics, uh, there's some dialogue, uh, actual dialogue from um, a panel that you were on uh, that day. And as a sort of, you know, beginning antitrust scholar, I, I came across this dialogue uh, you know, back in 2008, 2009, during sort of the absolute low point um, uh, in antitrust enforcement. And I very much viewed the dialogue and your sort of defense uh, of, uh, of your work as being, uh, you know, sort of emblematic of this battle, that political battle that was going on um, back then. And I, I remember this, this passage I'm going to read to you, and I, and I wonder if you recall it yourself. So it, it was Milton Handler, um, who I, I guess was an antitrust uh, uh, attorney or, uh, uh, at the time, says, yes. he says, um, am I correct in interpreting Professor Shearer as favoring a program of deconcentration? Then he goes on, he says, if I am correct, he is telling us that in a program of deconcentration, we would not lose plant efficiency. And if we lose some multi-plant efficiency, the loss to society would not be very great. Then he goes on and he says, well, to me, that is like saying that you can take a drug, a medicine, and it is not going to do you any harm. 
but I haven't heard him expound what good would flow from a program of deconcentration. And, and your response is, and you, you say several things, but um, it's sort of the, to your, I think the following passage from your response sums up the, the tenor. You said, my role as an economist is to say, look, society, if you want this kind of world, here is what it is going to cost. But I am not willing to say do it. I think that is the business of the legislative bodies. And I was always struck from this passage by how the Chicago folks who were all academics had, they were not only willing to push sort of an intellectual view, but they were also willing to push a policy position. They were willing to say, don't do it. Don't do the antitrust. And here you were having spent all this time looking at minimum efficient scale, having produced this massive study that I think quite convincingly showed that you could do a lot of deconcentration safely. And when they pushed you on it, you stopped and you, you weren't, weren't willing to say we should do it. You said it's for the, the legislature to do it. And I always understood that as being sort of emblematic of how taken aback you were by the fact that what you had thought was going to be mostly an academic meeting had sort of turned into partly an academic, but also partly a political or policy oriented meeting. Uh, is, am I right to read it that way? Or have I just completely misconstrued things sort of, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in hindsight? Well, I think you're basically right. Uh, I had not reread that passage uh, for many, many years. Uh, it, it sounds plausible, sounds like something I, of a position I would have taken. Uh, the, uh, I would add this, uh, only this. If, uh, first of all, if Congress is going to support such legislation, it should have caveats. Uh, be careful. Uh, study carefully what you're doing, what the social, what the uh, economic consequences will be, uh, what the social consequences will, will be. Uh, that's the kind of function uh, that an economist should play. As uh, there, there's a mantra among economists, an economist should be on tap, not on top. So if you want to have a program like that. Uh, yes, yes, go ahead and, and legislate it, but put appropriate, uh, put appropriate caveats on so that there are careful studies of what the consequences of any given divestiture or merger limitation uh, action will be. And I indeed have paid a fair amount of attention uh, to trying to implement this. When I was at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, we had a case before us, a merger case, and I had I had studied in detail this industry in my multi-plant operation uh, study. Uh, I I knew that there were very substantial economies to be had of a form that had not really been discussed in the literature previously before our book. Uh, but in any event, I knew that there might be substantial efficiencies realized for this merger. And the, Fed, the enforcement staff at that FTC said, sue. And the, econom the chief economist always had some say so in the uh, uh, commission's decisions to sue. 
And I said, uh, well, if you're going to sue, you should invite the parties to present an efficiencies defense, an invitation which had never before uh, been issued. Uh, I left the commission not long after that, but I learned that the lawyers were horrified by my suggestion, and they they found means. Oh, the commission voted that indeed a, 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 an efficiencies defense would be welcomed, uh, but the lawyers found a way to subvert it. Uh, in the uh, in the early 1980s, as I said before, uh, the Department of De, uh, Justice issued new new merger guidelines. Uh, Oliver Williamson had written a very, very significant paper in the late 60s based on his experience as chief economist for the Justice Department Antitrust Division, uh, urging that efficiencies defenses be incorporated in antitrust proceedings. Nothing happened until 1982 when the new merger guidelines said uh, an efficiencies defense uh, should be presented. 1984, it was amended uh, to uh, clarify a little bit the nature of the defense. And I remember shortly thereafter receiving uh, a telephone call from my uh, former FTC colleague, Owen Johnson, an attorney, and Owen said, Mike, how would you like to present the first efficiencies defense under an, uh, a Section 7 uh, merger proceeding? And I said, Owen, I would love it. And we did, in fact, present an efficiencies defense. The, uh, the judge in the case that involved Archer Daniels Midland, the judge in the case heard our defense, which I thought was very compelling, and he said, there are no precedents precedence for this, I'll rule on other grounds. But since then, there have been efficiency defenses. I don't know how well they've gone. Well, there have been a number of commentators who've argued that sort of this, the rise of the efficiencies defense, um, even though it hasn't had a huge footprint sort of doctrinally in antitrust, you know, has contributed to the sort of reduction in enforcement because it it complicates cases then you, you, you know in the in the sort of old regime you know you looked at uh you know you looked at before and after concentration levels uh you looked at the after merger market share and you basically made a decision and you didn't worry about efficiencies at all uh and that's why you had a merger regime that justice stewart famously said you know, for which he said the rule was that the government always wins, right? <laughs> I remember um, that. <laughs> so, but, but once you have efficiencies, all of a sudden it becomes this sort of complex economic question. And that probably explains why the lawyers at the FTC were so worried about that. I mean, you know, I know you've said earlier that you don't think that Early House and sort of the, you know, the, the recognition of how subtle these questions were ultimately affected policy. But I mean, through the efficiencies defense, isn't there a way in which we can say that sort of the intellectual changes in economics did affect policy by sort of muddying or complicating the, the antitrust issue to an extent that made it impossible for, for, you know, for enforcers to convince courts that they need to pull the trigger? Well, I, I would agree with you that things have become much more complicated. I would not agree with you 
that Airly House was the cause. As I suggested before, I think the prime cause was the late 1960s paper by Oliver Williamson. I think it was entitled something like Efficiencies as an Antitrust Defense, although I'm not sure about that. Uh, but in any event, Oliver won the Nobel Prize in Economics. His writings had to be uh, realized, and that formed a, a significant element of support for uh, the eventual introduction of an efficiencies defense. I don't doubt that the advent of a more conservative regime at the Justice Department in the early 1980s uh, had some role in, uh, in causing them to uh, articulate an efficiencies defense. But as you suggest, it's very, very difficult uh, one, and, and for in this uh, uh, context, one means the economist has to understand a lot about the industry's technology. Uh, I wrote a paper for the OECD, the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, on the uh, efficiencies defense. I pointed out many of the difficulties uh, in implementing such a defense. It's very, very difficult. I, I, I said, quite frankly, I don't think economists are equipped to deal with it. And I suggested that uh, industrial engineers had to be brought into the picture to give uh, uh, a, a proper setting for an efficiencies defense. Uh, so I want to switch gears and uh, just talk a little bit about other sort of uh, goals of antitrust other than just sort of promoting economic efficiency. And in the same exchange um, at Arley House that I was quoting to you earlier, um, you, you said, I think the issue goes a good deal further uh, than just sort of efficiencies. Uh, and then you said, we may like deconcentration for a variety of sociological and political reasons. Uh, and as you read this conference volume, it's actually incredible the extent to which um, a, a large number of people in the, in the volume who, who, who contributed to the conference seem to share the notion that deconcentration should be pursued not for efficiency reasons, but for these sociological and political reasons. And I, I, I think the, you know, the main argument was that we don't want to live in a world in which we have sort of massive corporations that have this sort of bureaucratic control over our lives. In since since this time, antitrust has been taken over by this consumer welfare standard idea that the purpose of antitrust is to pursue uh, sort of the protection of consumer welfare in the economic sense. Do you do you share that shift in focus, or do you continue to believe that you know one of the major reasons why we should have antitrust and do deconcentration might be sociological and political, and not necessarily economic? Well, I'd say several points on this. Uh, first of all, the sociological and political objective. Uh, Bob Bork would say, no, no, no. Uh, the intent of the framers of the Sherman Act uh, was economic welfare, plain and simple. Uh, when the, the first U.S. antitrust statute was passed by the state of Kansas in 1889, a year before the Sherman Act, 
And uh, back then, the University of Kansas had a symposium uh, looking at, uh, uh, at uh, where are we 100 years later? I, I did a paper for it. I wasn't really fully aware of what Bork had uh, argued, but in any event, I went back to the founding fathers. I looked at the economic, uh, in particular, I looked at the economic literature at the time the Sherman Act was uh, passed, and, and the, 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 the debate at the Sherman Act proceedings uh, and the economic literature, neither one uh, did put much emphasis on economic welfare. Uh, there was much more emphasis on uh, efficiency effects, economies of scale, sociological effects, and political effects. And I, I wrote this paper, but I, it was published in a very obscure law journal, and I don't think anyone has noticed. <laughs> That that may be true for for all, for all publications in all law journals. <laughs> oh, maybe so. I don't know. But but in any event, uh, the founding fathers, so to speak, uh, had much broader objectives in mind. I think that we should put emphasis on efficiencies when we try to do these kinds of things. Uh, I need. I, I believe economists need to be trained to do. Uh, efficiencies studies, and I'm talking about cost efficiencies, not market efficiencies. And uh, uh, I fear I have been unsuccessful here and have suggested in the alternative that we turn to uh, industrial engineers. But, but this, is, this is an open area of debate. Uh, I think when, we, when a lot of people change their views on antitrust, to say that it would it should be aimed at at uh, uh, economic welfare, uh, they they opened up a hornet's nest. It was an important hornet's nest, but it's a it's one that's uh, with which it's, it's difficult to deal. And my OECD paper was about this. Indeed, I have a revision coming out that uh, talks about this problem in. Uh, it, 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 with new dimensions added to it. I don't want to preempt the paper, so I won't go into the details. <laughs> so, Mike, in, in closing, uh, we were wondering if there are things about the Early House Conference, your experiences there, or its significance that we should have asked you but didn't. I don't think so. Uh, I, I think we've covered... Uh, the main elements. Uh, note again, I think the key thing here is the organizers of the Early House Conference recognized clearly that there were strongly dissenting points of view. Uh, they made sure that they had good representation of each of the major dissenting schools. Uh, a great clash ensued. It certainly influenced my thinking. It said to me, we need to do a lot more, more sophisticated research. So in that sense, Early had an influence. I don't think it determined policy. Well, well, thank you so much. It's been a really a great pleasure talking to you today. It's been, it's been, been great, uh, great having you, Mike. 
Well, uh, it was my pleasure. Uh, as I say, I'm 86 years old, and it may be my last word on the subject, but uh, I, I, I still enjoy discussing it. Well, I'm, I'm sure that that won't be the case, uh, that it will be your last word, um, given how prolific you've been even uh, in retirement. Thanks again, Mike. You're quite welcome.